0: Okay, good morning. We have a very special treat here this morning in catechesis because our very own bishop of the Anglican Diocese of Pittsburgh, Bishop Alec Cameron is here. I know it's spelled A-L-E-X, but he, it is pronounced Alec. That's a little counterintuitive there, but. Um, few bits of business first. Um, this guide to the Book of Common, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there were a couple of errors in it and a couple of things that were actually out of order. We did print more um, and as we move into the Advent season, we will continue to be using this rather than going to our seasonal daily prayer booklets. So there are more of these out there as well as <clears throat> the November colics insert and daily readings for the daily office. So. Next week, we've moved everything, excuse me, we've moved everything back um, a week to allow Bishop Cameron to be with us this morning. So next week, I will be teaching on um, understanding the Eucharist, the patterns of the Eucharist in our daily lives. So I'm pleased to introduce Bishop Alec. Um, I'm gonna tell you a few things about him. Um, He uh, was originally from Nova, Nova Scotia. He was born in Halifax, but then raised in a small village in Nova Scotia that he just told me five generations of his family lived in that little village. He um, grew up in a kind of a nominally, uh, this is on, according to his spiritual autobiography, which you can read the whole thing. I believe it's still on the web. I'm not sure, but- uh, Absolutely nothing else to do, you could, yes. <laughs> No, I think it's really interesting because I love his story. If there's anything I learned from reading his story is that Bishop um, Alec has a passion for church planning and also the healing ministry, which is a wonderful combination in a bishop. Um, He graduated from college in 1985 from a university in Halifax. And it was in his junior year of college that he had um, a very... Life-changing, um, transform transformative experience with Jesus, and at that point on, he said, "If there is a theme for my life with the Lord, it has been finding out that He always is bigger than I thought, or remembered." So I think that's really beautiful. He did go on to graduate from seminary. He felt a call to ministry after college. He graduated from Wycliffe Seminary in 1990 in Toronto, and. Um, after about I believe it was five years in ministry in he was a curate of a large church in Montreal and then he was rector of a church outside Montreal he decided that the Lord had a different path for him and he went into business uh, for 10 years as software management I believe yes and he moved to Vermont but during this period he Uh, met a woman who was the head of a healing ministry called Isaiah 40, and it was through this healing ministry he became more involved in that, and then when she died in 2015, he he was asked to take over as the um, head of that healing ministry, and in between that, the times that he was working in Vermont in business, in 2003, he found there were some homeless Anglicans, in the town he was living in, in Vermont. I think that sounds familiar for us as a parish. And he started a church under the, uh, under the leadership of the Bishop of New England. He planted a church. So he certainly has a lot of experience. I really appreciate that so much that he is our bishop. But also he is, well, just my own brief interchange with him, he's a really warm, and wonderful man. Obviously, the hand of the Lord is on him. So let us welcome our bishop this morning.
1: Thank you for that warm welcome. I appreciate it. Uh, My task, I was told today, um, my life really literally has become somebody else is going to dress you and tell you where to go, Um, uh, literally, anyway. it was really to, to speaking out of the prayer book to give you some sense of my life experience of the prayer book and how it has shaped and formed my life and my spirituality um, and really uh, you know to put the word spirit, spirituality is kind of a vague large word let's talk about my life with Jesus how it has shaped my life with Jesus and I think that's really important I want to begin um, thank you Mary for um, taking the time to read all of that and um, distill some notes and all that sort of stuff. And and thank you for including the years in that because I never know what year anything was. Um, But I generally speaking know what happened in what order. Um, So um, I love people that have the capacity to say, oh, well, in 2015 this happened. I said, great. In 2015 it was 2015. I have no idea what happened in 2015. Anyway, so I grew up as a uh, sort of, there's this denomination in Canada called the United Church of Canada, and in 1925, um, some Congregationalists and some Presbyterians and some Methodists got together and let's say, let's, uh, you know, have a United Church, so it became the United Church of Canada, and uh, that's the, that's where my father and his family were, they had had been Presbyterians, being good Scots, um, and uh, became part of the United Church of Canada, and that's where I kind of grew up sort of nominally and experienced that. However, my first experience of the prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer, was with my mother's family. My mother's family was Anglican. They live in a place in Nova Scotia called Cape Breton, which is, frankly, um, Canada's answer to Appalachia. Um, in all respects, in being beautiful and all of the, the stereotypes that come along with Appalachia. My, I've, I read... Uh, hillbilly elegy. And I thought, this is my mother's family. (laughs) Um, I mean, very, very familiar. But I remember um, as a probably, you know, preteen or I don't know, going to my grandmother's home and we would always go to this Anglican church. And it was very different from the sort of Presbyterian sort of experience that I had had growing up. And there I was first introduced to the Book of Common Prayer and sort of navigating that book and um, hearing people sort of pray from it and and it actually left a very significant impression on me um, which I didn't understand and uh, I still don't entirely understand um, and so that was my first experience of the prayer book um, and that and the prayer book also the other thing that we did that was this was the deal in my family is that when we were with Um, my mother's side of the family in Cape Breton, we would go to the Anglican Church. And on Christmas and usually Easter, we went to the Anglican Church. And I remember distinctly, particularly as a child, going to Midnight Mass on um, Christmas Eve. It's the only uh, day of the year we were allowed to call it Mass. Um, um, (laughs) Because otherwise it was just church. Um, And I just remember um, there's something about... Just these old ancient words in a candlelit service in this tiny little rural church, that actually conveyed the mystery of God to me in a way that I didn't entirely understand, and that was all you know coming out of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and there's Bishop Martin arriving. Um, I'm, welcome, Martin. We can't say it, yeah. And uh, and so that was that, that was that left an impression on me, um, and then I. After I had this conversion experience in France, which was quite significant, I came back and started looking for a church, and I ended up at this Anglican church in downtown Halifax called St. Paul's, very old wooden church. I think it's the oldest wooden church in Canada, actually. Um, And it's and and there, it was sort of it's where I met Tamara. Um, There were a lot of kind of young university folks there, and I was a young university person at the time. I am no longer and. um, and I started worshiping there, and I encountered the Book of Common Prayer again. Now, the B- Book of Common Prayer that context, in that context was the 1962 Canadian Book of Common Prayer, which would be the, kind of the equivalent of your 1928 um, Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, but it was a revision that was done. I, I don't know what other, other other revisions were in it, but significantly, there were revisions were made for the one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-two publication. So we would be praying for the Queen instead of the succession of kings that had been between Victoria and Elizabeth. Um, of course, in America, you don't have to worry about pl- praying for the Queen. Um, we did though, and um, and frankly, when I say the suffrages, uh, even to this day, I get um, um, caught on the one that um, in Canada has, was always praying for the Queen. So. Um, we pray now for those who govern us, but so that was my experience, and I remember um, coming into this church that that um, was before sort of bulletins that had everything in it, and people, um, you just, you had your prayer book, and you knew that, it, and I know that, I'm pretty sure that it begins on page 62 in the 1962 prayer book, um, and um, to find that, and I learned to navigate the prayer book going to that church, which... Had it was it was and I, I experienced both things in this context, which is wonderful. I experienced the the, the sort of corporate morning prayer um, at St. Paul's Halifax because it was low church evangelical, and I also uh, experienced communion and Eucharist um, from the Book of Common Prayer, and that was incredibly formative. We one of the one of the things that we miss um, in it was interesting. The rector there, uh, his name was Peter Mason, um, and in. His name still is, Peter Mason. and uh, he, uh, uh, when he arrived, they, had, they were doing communion you know once a month, whether you need it or not. And um, welcome to the mens, by the way. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Great to see you all. Uh, the, the, um, welcoming the mens, I've forgotten what I was ultimately saying about that, but once, uh, a, month, right? oh, once a month, whether you need it or not. Um, Peter um, d- decided that um, um, communion. Um, which is what they still called it there, um, not Eucharist, uh, was uh, would be more helpful uh, twice a month. So we alternated between morning prayer and communion, and morning prayer and communion. Now Many people left the church because Peter was taking us down the rosy road to Rome. I quote um, directly, um, but it, but but the value of that for me was I was formed as a very early Christian with a rhythm of corporate morning prayer and corporate um, Eucharist. And, um, and the rhythm of morning prayer, the words of morning prayer, the habit of morning prayer, not just every other week in church, but eventually every day in my life shaped and formed my whole understanding of um, Christian spirituality. Um, and one of the things I say about, uh, I think this is really important about our prayer book tradition, there are a couple of things that I think are important, but one of which is the prayer book, um, in its expression, both in the morning prayer and certainly in Eucharist, lays out the gospel for us. You know, there's a lot of crit- critique that, you know, these prayer books from, you know, I, I, I spent my life in sort of kind of low church, sort of, you know, interacting with a lot of low church and sort of Baptist and non-denominational sort of people who um, always complained about sort of the dryness of, just wrote prayers where you say the same thing every week and how can that be meaningful and significant and all that sort of stuff. And I had a young um, youth pastor that worked for me once and uh, he was from a Bible school and he was he was great. He was so gifted. And he came and I interviewed with him in a church in uh, sort of suburban Montreal. Uh, he came to interview with me and, and I said, Joel, I think you're very gifted, but I think you will find things really too Catholic for you here. He said, oh, no, 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 it'll be fine. Well, it wasn't. But um, <laughs> it, it was ultimately fine. Um, but uh, the reality is that we had a lot of conversations. And we, he, I got this whole rote thing. And, and, and I, I said to him one day, I said, Joel, if um, I go to your church, well, this is literally what I was saying. So I'll quote myself. Um... um If I go to your church and the sermon sucks, I'm hosed. But if you come to my church and the sermon sucks, at least you'll get the gospel and the prayer of consecration. Um, So um, you tell me. And number two, could you go back and read this and come back and tell me that it's wrote? Which he did, to his credit, and he said, no, it is not. The richness of the prayer book for me and for so many Anglicans um, is that the gospel continues to be presented to us in all of the services Um, and a a good both Catholic and Reformed theology of who we are and who God is and the redemption that we find in Jesus. Um, It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. There is wisdom in it. So that's the first thing is I think the gospel and, and c- continuing to encounter the gospel in the, in the Book of Common Prayer has been really significant uh, for me um, and in the habits of morning prayer. I'm going to say something about the habits of morning prayer in a minute. The second thing um, is that it is common prayer. Um, and not common in the sense of it's not significant or important, but common in the sense that it's shared. You know, one of the things that is um, really powerful in my experience, and particularly in my experience more recently where I'm literally somewhere else every Sunday, um, is that it's the same. It's, this, I mean, there's some variation, but it is the same. It is predictably the same, and it becomes something that is comfortable and well-known in which we can encounter Jesus. Because I'm not constantly trying to figure out, well, what what are we doing to, today? what's the word today Um, and what's the order today and what's going on today. Um, It is the same, and that comfort, I mean, C.S. Lewis talks about this. It's like a comfortable pair of shoes, Um, new shoes you have to get used to. And if you have new shoes every Sunday, um, these shoes I'm wearing, I got new just before I was consecrated. And they were very uncomfortable on the day of the consecration. (laughs) Um, um, So I didn't think that went through very well, Um, but they're very comfortable now. Um, And I don't think about them, but they do their job. And that's exactly what common prayer is like. And I remember the interesting thing about sort of the the importance of the common thing is when I moved from Canada to the United States and encountered the 1928 prayer book at the time. Of course, 79 was around as well, but some places I went, people still were into the 1928 prayer book. And and I remember, you know, going through the prayer of consecration, which was committed, the Canadian one was committed to memory, and it was very, very similar. Very, very similar, but not quite. Um, And nothing worse than something very, very similar and not quite, because I stumbled. Um, I stumbled um, over a a couple of phrases, and I had to get used to the new common reality. But again, once you're used to that, it is something that we can listen to and not be disturbed, that it's shifting and changing kind of every week, and it's just, I think it... um, create space for our life and spirituality. I um, just want to talk a little bit then about the habit of prayer. Um, you know, one of, um, one of the great gifts of the office, the daily office, and when we can say it together with others, it's fantastic. Um, but saying it um, by ourselves um, every day is also incredibly fantastic for a couple of different reasons. One of which is this um, you know we don't have to make again we don't have to make something up um, I remember a couple years ago a few years ago now I did a funeral of a friend of mine she d- died quite early of cancer and uh, she had she and her f- husband had been Anglicans but they were now worshiping in a Baptist church for any number of reasons and um, and but they asked me to do the service so um, so I said sure and their pastor, let me do the service. And I came and did this Anglican um, from the Book of Common Prayer um, funeral service. It was hysterical because afterwards, everyone said, Oh, that was so beautiful. And they were clearly thinking that I had made this up out of my head. I disabused them of that. Um, oh, no, no, no. This is Thomas Cranmer, not me. Um, and but, but that's that's the value of it. Is I don't have to make this up and figure out what I need and want to say. And the things that I ought to be saying and should be saying, somebody has already thought through. Doesn't mean there isn't space for me to say to pray extemporaneously what I want to pray. But you know, I just even think of the 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 the, the, the prayer, the confession. Um, it goes through um, that we've offended a God. We've offended God. That we've done things and we've left things undone. It just hits all the bases, because somebody thought it through. And it's there for us. And so I love the fact that it's there, and there are words that I don't have to make up, which are really, really important, because sometimes you don't have words yourself. We went through a period in our lives, for about 10 years, where there was just a lot of loss and grief and death of parents and friends and Tamara's sister Um, Over 10 years, it was just the big question of the Cameron family, well, who died this year? Or it was a banner year if somebody didn't die. Um, It really was. And in that period, I, I, I had nothing to say in my prayers. I had nothing rich and meaningful bubbling up through my soul to give to God. But words were here so I could continue to pray. Really important, you know. It's really, really important. I think the other thing that I think about the rhythm of daily prayer. Um, you know, I had this conversation with a young man not too long, but maybe about a year ago, and um, he was uh, struggling with. Uh, I was this spiritual direction kind of conversation. He was struggling with his his, his uh, you know, um, quiet time or morning devotions or whatever you want to call them, and um, and. I said to him, he, and they were, he was deeply dissatisfied that they were not what he was expecting them to be. And I said, so, well, help me understand, how do you measure success um, for your quiet time? Um, and he said, well, I think, you know, if I have an experience of God, and I have a deeper sense of being sanctified, and there's quite a lot long, fantastic list of very earnest things that he would love to accomplish every, every morning when he's with God. And I said, can I give you a different um, measure of success? Um, And he said, sure. And I said, I did it. Our job, and that's the value of this. You know, sometimes we think, well, i prayed this and I didn't get anything out of it. Oh, well. (laughs) Um, You did it. And the purpose, our job in, you know, having words and bringing words and having that time is, is to provide space for God to do what God wants to do. And sometimes, maybe because we're grieving or we're in a bad space, we don't even have the capacity to receive anything. So, God is gracious and says, just go ahead and do it. But if we create the space, it gives, ooh, party um, Gives us options, or it really creates space for God to act in our lives. And, and I just remember that season of death where we were just, and, and that habit of just doing Um, the office daily um, was so important to me because I had words and I will be frank with you it wasn't rich and meaningful. Oh well. Um, Until it was. Because one day as we continue that we encounter something that we've been praying by rote a hundred times and suddenly the vanity (laughs) Bring springs forth to life, um, and we hear something fresh again. Sometimes, and you know, I, I remember at one point just the just the the, the absolution in morning prayer, that you know the, um, the absolution, and I just I was just I was so struck. The absolution happens, and then there is a petition. After the, the priest says those absolution are sort of words, he says that he would grant us true repentance. Well, didn't we already repent? Well, no. We just confessed. We still need to do true repentance. We need grace to do true repentance. The wisdom of the prayer book that understands the things that we need to do. Like confession isn't just confession is just confession, um, and without sort of true repentance, that is a, a, a change of behavior. Confession without repentance is just a party, um, and regret. But the prayer book understands that. And I just remember reading that one morning. It just came to life. The, the wisdom of this. After emptiness and it meant nothing to me, there it is, fresh again, and that's the movement of God. That's the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we create space through this, these habits um, of prayer um, in our life. And so, and the um, I have nothing other to say about my personal experience of the Book of Common Prayer, but I can trace its influence on my life from my childhood to uh, today. Um, And it continues to be the mainstay of how I pray. Um, And anyway, so that's all I really want to say. I I was told to give space for questions. And so I'm doing that now.
0: It's great. As one as a newcomer fairly newcomer to the Anglican tradition you have made me feel less guilty when I don't stay on the pattern and more anticipatory and so I thank you for that Amen. I've heard it before Deacon Mary and others but I guess it just takes time I mean when your whole life has not been well my young life in the Roman Catholic Church but that was different with the missal. I um, yeah. But yeah, now at my age to suddenly come to a new tradition and realize the benefit of that as more than just tradition.
1: So thank you for your words. So welcome.
0: I I especially appreciated what you said about the prayers not being wrote. Every morning when we come to them, we are different. We have lived another day and we are different. So every day when we come to those prayers, we come as a different person than the day before. And I think that's one of the reasons that you spoke about how, at times, it just becomes so fresh and Amen. new. Yeah. Thank Amen. you. Ann. Um, I appreciated your show up just go every morning and do it, but without expectation. That that takes the uh, pressure off of having a mountaintop experience every morning. Do you have a favorite collect?
1: Uh Uh-huh. I do. What a great question. I have um, two favorite collects. Um, They are the uh, Ash Wednesday Collect um, and um, the first Sunday of um, Advent. And in my, the tradition that I, the Anglican tradition that I was, that I was trained in as a young priest, um, you would pray the Ash Wednesday Collect along with the Collect for the, the day, um, all the way through Lent and the first Collect, um, for, um, for, uh, Advent, uh, the, the Advent Collect. And of course the, the, the unfortunate difficulty is I have to get started, um, Um, But as soon as I get started, um, um, I can 100%... Oh, Ash Wednesday. Boy, it's worth remembering every word of this. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing that you have made. And forgive the sins of the of the penitent, all who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Almighty, and this is at first Sunday of Advent, Almighty God, give us grace. I, I Again, so much of this is... is, is lifted directly from the words of the Bible. Um, Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light, now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that at the last day when He shall come again in His glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Words to live by. Sometimes I'm tempted. Um, my uh, sort of evangelical low church training is always preach the gospel, preach the scriptures. I am sometimes tempted to preach the collect. Um, yeah. In fact, one uh, Advent in our church plant um, in, in uh, Vermont, um, I said to the preachers, I said, we're going to do a sermon series in Advent on the Advent Collect, Um, and it was fantastic. Yeah, so, yeah. So, I love those.
2: I find, um, when I try to do morning prayer, there's so much. And I, and I'm, Good evangelical background, I love the word. So I, I gravitate toward the word, especially if you do Lecto Divina, it takes forever. Yeah. So how do you, with all these, you've got just so many, you've got four or more parts that all could take an hour if you did it. Um, how do you work with that? And, and I'm sure it changes at different stages in your life, but I'm just curious, how do you put it all together? For instance, if I stay too long in the word, then I don't have any time to pray, that, right. those kinds of things.
1: That's a great question, and I, there, there's, uh, um, again, the purpose um, of the office is to direct our prayer. Um, Completing all portions of it before we're done um, is not required. Um, I mean, if we're doing, if we're leading it publicly, it kind of is, but again, even then, you can, you, you can say, we're just gonna do one lesson as we do this publicly. But the other piece of that that I would say is um, <laughs> um, prayer demands ample time from our lives. Um, and um, wish I could give Here's a 15-minute prayer solution for you so you can say your prayers and get on with your life and get to your day and it's kind of not like that and i and i and i and i do also appreciate that the lectionary in the 2019 bcp um, is committed to us reading as much scripture as possible so the lessons tend to take longer than historically um, been but i, I so I, so all of that's true so all i would say is as we do this as we pray this um, it's important to be uh, sensitive to the spirit as we're praying and as we're doing the office. And if the Lord is leading us to stick with uh, kind of electio Divina with this text instead of moving on with our prayers, um, great, do that. If we're always sticking with the text and not moving with our prayers and doing a sort of, for example, by the way, a daily prayer for mission, um, uh, then... Perhaps we need to adjust that a little bit so that we're, we're we're saying I'm gonna I'm gonna read the word I'm gonna be part of the word but I do want to get to those prayers and petitions and intercessions and ultimately thanksgivings, um, which are really important. So, you know, it's about using it as a tool but not being a slave to it to a certain extent. And you know, noticing. Um, you know, recently, I have been noticing that um, I have been like you walking through, um, you know, first and second Kings in morning prayer, um, they're, a, they're a long text and there's a lot happened to me the other day and, and it was just before, was, I think it was um, um, just before Josiah's reforms. And it was, it was, you know, it just, you know, ended as like, no, there's more to be read. I'm, I, 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 I want to finish this story yes. this morning instead of wait till tomorrow. So uh, that's legal. Um, but sometimes it's like, you know what, I've spent this with this text. I'm not going to read the second lesson this morning. I'm going to go on to my prayers. You know, it, it, it's not required. So there's some flexibility and just listening in to the Spirit as he leads us, and that I think is part of the reality. So, but it does take time, um, and I work hard not to begrudge that because um, it is time for the Lord to do what he wants to do in my life.
2: Hello, my name is Mary, and this is kind of a more academic question rather than like a personal like question. Um, I don't know if you're too familiar with the decisions that were made regarding the the 2019 version and changes from the 79 version. And I was wondering if there were any, um, like when that update was being made, if you're aware of like what, are there things that you miss? Are there your things you're really grateful for in this new edition? Um, and if there are things that were taken away, are you aware of the decision-making behind that process?
1: Well, the, the quick answer on the decision-making behind that process, um, Bishop Martin would be able to um, uh, inform you way better than I was. because, uh, um, Well, at least you were in the college at the time. I certainly was not. So, um, so I don't know the answer to that question. But I will tell you... Um, that there are some things that I really um, appreciate um, about this. Um, I appreciate, for example, that there are two Eucharistic prayers, not a hundred. Um, <laughs> not that 79 had a hundred. I think they had four. But um, um, but it's nice that that cuts back to the common thing. It's like you're going to get this or that. You're not going to get this, that, or you know some other random thing that um, might be trendy at the time. And so I. I I appreciate I appreciate that I also specifically um, the renewed ancient text I love 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 trampling hell and Satan under his feet fantastic um, what a great thing to say in that Eucharistic prayer love that um, I do miss um, I, I You know, in the baptismal service, there are these promises that we make um, in and around the creed. And I understand why, theologically, you would not want to, you know, kind of confuse the creed with other sorts of promises. Um, I get that. But I I do rather miss the fact that we no longer promise to respect the dignity of every human being because I think that's a rather fantastic promise. Um, But we could i still do that anyway, (laughs) so, so, um, um.
2: you've obviously challenged me to respond to your (laughs) slight dig, uh, personally, I really prefer the 1662 version. Uh, I find the whole newfangled 1928 way too modern and of course these other things. But seriously, I think each version has its strengths and weaknesses, and I think they reflect uh, the, the world around it. And um, Kramer was never trying to put things into concrete. Yeah. Uh, it was basically quite revolutionary and contemporary at the time. I think our danger with prayer books is to look back and to f- sort of fossilize the bits we like, rather than realizing he's trying to bring the language of faith to respect the values of it in the past, but also to reflect some of the the current concerns. So I think, enjoy. There'll always be something missing, and the older you get, the more you'll miss. Uh, But uh, just enjoy them all. I've got a wonderful 1549 prayer book, and it's kind of fun to look at it uh, and to see how much of it still continues on in terms of the rhythms, the majesty, the beauty of the language. Uh, We have a great and wonderful gift. I think, just bragging among us here, we've got the best thing going. Uh, All other churches really don't have anything quite like our history of the Book of Common Prayer. And many have tried to steal from it, which is, of course, fine. But it's a great and wonderful gift. It's a part of our heritage, and we should celebrate it. Amen. But I was not at the original college in 1662.
1: (laughs) I will say, um, in... uh, just in support of, because um, Martin feels that I've um, given him a little dig, and I, um, um, I apologize if that was the case, but I, I, I quite agree with him. Because you know, if you go also to some other founding documents, the, the 39 articles that worship should be in a language understanded of the people, um, is one of the articles. And of course, that was talking about English instead of Latin, but it's worth actually expanding that and understanding that idiom and how we express and what we understand, and language does change, and so there are needs um, to make what we're doing in a language understandable of the people. So, um, and that's part of the dynamic of the range around prayer books, so.
0: I just wanna add a little comment about the Psalter. Um, I just, when I started using the Psalter in our prayer book, it, the language was so much stronger and so much more um, really touching my soul in its poetry and I think that speaks to using the Psalter that was in the first prayer book um, the Coverdale Psalter with some you know minor differences but it really it is amazing and again not being afraid to mention the devil or hell um, I think is really important too and I think some of these um, the Psalms are much more specific um, than some of the translated ones are. Other translations.
1: Thank well, you. and it, picking up on the Psalter and to your question earlier, um, there are some things that I might omit, om- never the Psalms. Um, I cannot tell you how frequently, uh, just the, the in the Psalter, in the prayer book, but the Psalms generally speaking, um, every... Human reality and experience and despair and joy and praise and loss and grief and hope, it's all there. How frequently have we been reading the Psalms and say, Oh, this is exactly what is the cry of my heart um, right now? And the, 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 the Psalter um, is this remarkable things because it's actually our words to God, but at the same time, um, God's words to us inspired, and it's an incredible thing. I heard somebody once, um, I I wish I had written down who said this, because I think it's a a brilliant statement. The Psalms are 150 things that God is okay with us saying to him. Um, And some of them are quite controversial, frankly, if you think about it. So it's a fantastic thing. Do you speak at all to the efforts to translate the Book of Common Prayer into other languages, especially those that uh, have a large population of Anglicans? Um, well, I, my only comment was, I think that's a good idea. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, it, you know, I, so I come from Canada and, and ministered for many years in Quebec. And, uh, there's not a huge, large, French Quebec Anglican population, nonetheless um, um, the prayer book has been translated into French uh, for use in French congregations and so and so and, and and again, it comes back to language understanding of the people um, the the flow and the rhythm and the understanding of what the liturgy looks like and how it's shaped um, remains the specific words that are connected to people's you know native language the the prayer book is translated um into a um, um, or um inuktitut is what is what's it, it's language inuktitut it's in a it's in a in but inuktitut we have a friend who lives in northern quebec um and goes to this little anglican church that the service is in is in inuktitut and the prayer book is translated into Inuktitut and they say, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. In Inuktitut, I don't know how to say that, otherwise I would have done, so it would have been impressive, but I, that's all I got. So. Oh, who is the woman that's with that? This is the, this is the, I'll just repeat the question. Who is the woman This is my wife, Tamara. That's so, Im- that's um, so important.
0: Any other questions? Okay, I have one more, that's okay. We have three more minutes.
2: So your experience in Isaiah 40 was healing. Mm -hmm. How does that work into your ministry now into this diocese?
1: Let me see if I can do this in a few minutes. In the New Testament, there is no distinction linguistically between salvation and healing. It is the same word. And as we are, sometimes we think as, in again, coming at a sort of, sort of, uh, sort of evangelical thought, salvation means something very narrow and specific, um, which is the day that I made a decision for Jesus, if you're lucky enough to remember that. Um, and not everybody is. Doesn't mean they haven't made a decision for Jesus, they just didn't have a conversion experience. And so salvation is a much broader thing. It's a much broader thing. It is about the integration of the gospel of Jesus, that his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, glorification, into every aspect of our lives. And so salvation is, um, is healing in the sense of the healing of relationships, the healing of hurts. We, we, we will, in case you haven't noticed, but you probably have, um, I know your history here, we will hurt each other. Um, um, because we still live out of our sinful nature. Um, we will h- hurt each other. And, and healing um, is not just, of course, I mean, physical healing is one thing, but but healing is, is literally the application of the reality of the cross into the wounds of our lives, um, that the answer to all that is broken within us um, is in the gospel of Jesus, in the healing that comes by his wounds, we are healed. There are a lot of wounds in our diocese. There are a lot of questions and concerns and comments about, about you know, you know, frankly, some of the events that happened here. Um, there are lots of hurt still in the life of the diocese around what happened when Jim Hobby left, and what's all and, and, and there are people that um, are hurting and have been hurt by others, and the gospel. Healing is always involved. I think healing in this kind of context is always being able to receive and hear the story, Um, bring the cross of Jesus, because in all circumstances, we both need to um, have our wounds bound up, um, as it says in Isaiah, bind up the brokenhearted, Um, but we also have to um, receive forgiveness for our own sinful responses to the wounds that come against us. And that's the work of healing, uh, relational healing in the body of Christ. Um, And that's, um, you know, that's some of the work that um, I love to do. One of the things that I've done for many years um, at Isaiah 40 is both pastoral counseling and spiritual direction. And um, I know that there are pastors in this world who labor their entire lives and never see revival. But if you call revival seeing people come alive to the gospel of jesus christ in terms of receiving forgiveness themselves or being able to extend forgiveness to some um, person that hurt them um, i literally saw revival every week of my life um, because jesus remains present to heal your wounds and i said this at the Diocesan convention one of our problems with our wounds um, is we suck on them like a Werther's original, and we roll it over in our tongues, and we say, mm, doesn't that, oh, yeah, that did hurt. Mm, I'm going to remember that. And there is a process of remembering the pain. That is part of the process of healing. Um, but there is a day <laughs> when it needs to be brought to the cross. We need to let Jesus bind up our wounds, um, help us let go of the hurt, um, forgive those who have hurt us, and move on so that we may participate more fully in a more cleansed sense and a more free sense in the mission of the gospel that's in front of us it all comes back to we all need to bring all of our wounds and our tears and our hurt and our crisis to the cross um, um for mercy not for judgment um, And I think that that's the heart of what I think about. And I think we're done.
0: Thank you so much.